In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to episode 11, Pawn Order, and after one episode off, I'm back! Camille, I'm back. <laughs> Welcome back, Peter. We missed. I would say that we missed you, but it was actually pretty fun to have Anna on as a guest host. Sure. So you, you weren't that badly missed. Sure, you're plotting already. I can see it. That Pippa, she's, she's plotting. Take over my role. I can, I can see it in her eyes. Watch out. Well, I enjoyed the time off, Camille. I was very busy, as you know. I was finishing up a Supreme Court of Canada factum, and it was taking all my energy. So uh, I needed a little time to get that done, but that is in my rearview mirror, and we are back, Camille. Back in a big way, aren't we? Well, it's good to have you back, Peter. And uh, not just for this episode, but I'm also excited that we're actually going to get to see each other this Friday. Yeah, Paw and Order Madness, because dun, 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 we are celebrating. Episode 11 is our pre-Animal Justice 10-year anniversary gala episode. Yay! Woohoo! Very exciting. So actually... And by the time many of you are going to be listening to this, it's going to be after the gala. So you'll be able to check out photo albums on Facebook and all the social media posts to see how it went. But we're currently in the prep mode for it. Everything, I think, is on track. We're pretty much ready. It's still going to be an amazing 200-person event. And we've got some awards to give out and some special guests coming. So how are you feeling, Peter? Very well. I believe in the last podcast, which I listened to when you were speaking with Anna, I believe in the intro, that was two weeks ago, and I think what you said was, get your tickets quickly, and anybody who didn't listen to that is kind of out of luck. Is that right, Anna? Yeah, I'm sad to say that tickets did sell out, oh gosh, almost two weeks ago now. I, I think by the time the podcast with Anna and me came out, it was it was pretty much game over at that point. So I wish we had more, but, uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty packed house in there. Um, you know, if you're listening to this the day of the gala, you can always send us an email, gala at animaljustice.ca, just in case there's some that free up. But uh, otherwise, you might have to wait for the next time around. Yeah, 20 years, uh, 10 years from now, or <laughs> maybe maybe sooner. But uh, very excited about this. I'm really looking forward to catching up with a bunch of different friends and uh, people who are coming in special for the gala. It's going to be a who's who guest list in the animal advocacy community and also just a chance to celebrate um, with everybody who's around. And it's going to just be fantastic. So here's my uh, fictional raising a glass to 10 years of animal justice. That's what it's all about now. Cheers to that. And and, and I should tell you, um, I, I, I sent this to Camille already, but I, I went shopping this week. I got a special... A bow tie. I, I don't think I've worn a bow tie since I was like 11, but I got a special <laughs> bow tie for this event in the spirit of black tie, though it's not black tie and I'm not wearing a tuxedo. But I did manage to find a really cool bow tie with zebras on it, and I thought that was appropriate for the theme. That is pretty cool. Maybe we should actually post a photo of the zebra bow tie in the show notes. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Do you think we people will. would like that? <laughs> I don't know. Or we'll just, uh, we'll just, uh, 
we'll just get that together um, on other ways. But yes, yeah, so I'm flying out this week. Really excited about the gala. It's been uh, it's been a long time in the planning for all of us, and and honestly, it's just a, a chance to commemorate everything that we've done at Animal Justice, and a chance I think to uh, uh, you know pay tribute to what's going on going forward. And that's part of our episode today. We're going to get to the main topic in due course, and we got gala on our mind or 10 years of animal justice on our minds yeah and our main uh, our main topic today is going to be an interview with animal justice founder and our current board chair nick wright who uh has been just a tremendous force within the organization for as long as it's existed since he was the one who was involved in creating it so looking forward to uh to playing that for you guys it's it's pretty cool and, and hearing what he has to say yeah, we'll say a few more things about uh, Nick later on, but uh, I didn't want to forget, since we're going into the gala, and I didn't want to forget uh, to, to give my personal thanks and my personal commendation to my co-host, Camille Lapchuk, for all the work she's done to make this uh, gala the success that I know it's going to be. So I know that Camille, for those of you who didn't know, has been working incredibly hard on this event, and she's put together what looks like just a first, first class uh, tribute to animal justice. So kudos to you in advance, Camille. But I, I reserve the right to take it all back if it, if it flops. If, if it totally bombs and it's a disaster. Oh my gosh, I hope not. If it all Hell bombs, Shannon, I want well, you to edit this episode. If it all goes to hell, I never said it. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. It's It's been a long haul, but I'm just so excited for it all to pay off on yeah, Friday. Yeah, me too. I, I'm excited. Now. I'm excited. I'm excited for a fun night with everybody there. Uh, just, just, just really to, to have it. I think I, I've said this many times before, and uh, I think I said it even on, on an earlier episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure I have, but I'll say it again anyway. And it, it, we lose so often. You know, it's just like animal law is full of losses. Like we just lose. We lose constantly. We're fighting an uphill battle. Um, and I think you have to take your victories where you find them. And to me, 10 years of, of, of really growing and becoming a force uh, in Canadian society is not something to be taken lightly. And that's why I think when you get a chance like this, you got to celebrate it to the fullest. We've got to say, here we are. We're doing great things. Let's let's raise a glass to toast what's going on. I couldn't agree more, Peter. I think it's important to remind people that there is huge momentum behind what we are doing, behind what this entire community of incredible advocates across the country is doing. And like you said, it's not all fun. Uh, oftentimes, probably still more often than not, we're on the losing end of a case. We don't get the laws passed that we want. So really reflecting and cherishing the work that we have done, I think is important because it reminds everybody how far we've come in, and frankly, a pretty short time. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. So um, here, here. we should we, we can advise right now that um, our next episode, which is scheduled to come out um, around June 22nd, um, our next episode is going to be a recap of the gala. And I'm hoping that uh, I will be able to do some interviews with some of the people there. Hopefully, it's going to be hard to uh, grab her because she's going to be very busy with everything she has to do. But hopefully, Camille and I can get together to record a few words and uh, really, really try and capture the essence of what the gala was all about. Yeah, so you guys can all look forward to listening to that. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. Fantastic. So... Now, yeah, I was about to say you, Camille. What if you? I know, I know it's not all gala. I know you got other stuff on the go. What's been happening? Oh my God, Peter, so much. So this past weekend in Ottawa, we had Ottawa Veg Fest, which was Saturday and Sunday, both days, all weekend long. 
And I have to tell you, Peter, it was kick-ass. This event had probably close to 10,000 people come in through the doors over the course of the weekend. Wow. And, you know, it was so packed at one point. Actually, not just one point. Like, for most of Saturday, it was so packed that it was really difficult to move around, which I thought was fantastic because it just shows how much this event has grown. Uh, Animal Justice had a table, and we, you know, had a great time talking to people. And I was actually involved in the very first Ottawa Veg Fest. It was 2009, and my friend Pamela Tourigny and, and some other people in the National Capital Vegetarian Association, uh, we all you know, thought, thought it would be a good idea to have one. And you know, I think at the time that Toronto was the only other place that had a Veg Fest. So this, you know, somebody's probably going to email and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it's probably the second Veg Fest in the country of any significant size. So, you know, 2009, that's just nine years ago, there were like maybe 2,000, 3,000 people in the doors throughout the whole weekend. And this weekend, it's, you know, tripled in size, most likely. So it was really exciting to see the growth. Fantastic. And you, did you speak on a panel? I moderated the panel, actually. So I moderated it. We had Shannon, our communications manager and podcast producer. Hey, Shannon. She spoke on it. Uh, Tom Tecatch from Direct Action Everywhere. Scott Hoskins, who is an activist with the SAVE movement now and really interesting past. He's a former slaughterhouse employee and worked in deli departments and meat processing plants for years and then moved on to become an activist. And finally, finally, Rihanna Topan from Humane Society International, who works on broader animal advocacy pain, uh, campaigns and a lot of meat reduction stuff, too. So it was actually a really great panel, Peter. It was about animal advocacy and kind of, you know, strategies and tactics to make a difference for animals and how we can all be better personal animal advocates as well, just with our friends and with our families and our own activism. So I hope it inspired some people in the room to go and step up their game. Fantastic. Let me ask you one more thing about the VegFest, because really, you know, I care most about, you know, me and this podcast. Like, did people come up to you and say, Camille Lachuk, I've heard you on Paw and Order. <laughs> You're going to be happy here to Peter to hear that two people did. Two people. Two came people. Up to me. Wow. Two people. Shout out to the two people who stopped by and said they love Fawn Order. Camille, I have. I have. From it. Now I have a new goal. By next year's Veg Fest, four people. That's all I want, Camille. Four people to say <laughs> they heard Fawn Order. <laughs> I don't think that's unreasonable, Peter. I think we can pull it off. We'll, we'll, I'll keep hoping, Camille, every day. And um, um, I understand as well that Animal Justice has been busy because, from what I'm following, if I'm, you know, I've been a little out of it, Camille, but I, I understood that like Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals were steamrolling to re-election. Maybe I missed something. Ooh. Is that what's been going on over in Ontario? I'm out here in Alberta. I, all I know about is pipelines. What's happening out there? I feel like maybe you're reading news headlines from 2014 because. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Wynne has currently admitted defeat. And actually, by the time this podcast is out, um, everyone listening is going to know who the new premier of Ontario is. And I don't think it's going to be Kathleen Wynne. So in the face of uh, electoral uncertainty, what we've been trying to do with animal justice is get involved in a small way in the election by endorsing a few candidates who we know are going to be good on animal protection because they've made those commitments or have done great work already in provincial parliament. And we've sent some volunteers out to help canvas and knock on doors. And Peter, I know you've heard me rant about this on the podcast before, but I go. think it is just, here we go, here we go, gear up, guys. I think it is just critically important that we all get active politically. It's actually not that difficult to do. 
an election time is a great opportunity, but between elections and during an election, what I encourage you to do is call your candidates' campaign offices and ask them where they stand on animal issues and tell them that you're going to vote on that basis. Uh, but between elections, Peter, something really easy people can do is just call and ask for a meeting with your MP, MPP, or city councilor and tell them animals are important to you. Get that on their radar. We need more. We need like we need more sound effects on this show where like every time one of us gets on one of our hobby horses, like, <laughs> that, like we have the hooves galloping across. So like every time you mention direct action and stuff like that, it'll be like, boom, And every time I start ranting about the SPCA undercharging, it'll be like, boom, like, oh. oh, I love it. I love it. We can have one for federalism too. You know, federalism, oh. when people come up and say they've listened to the podcast, that is consistently one topic they tell us, tell me anyway that they really enjoyed and learned so much from. So maybe we should make that a theme. Well, we'll get on to it. Absolutely awesome. (sighs) So Peter, you have been having kind of a fun time recently as well. I understand you've had some single parenting adventures. Well, one of the reasons I couldn't do last week, aside from just being really busy, is that I'm working much shorter days. And the reason I'm working much shorter days is my my wife has uh, fled over to Germany for uh, a few weeks to visit her family. She took one of our children uh, with her, but she left me with the other child. So I have been single parenting. So um, first of all, I don't know what our call and order listenership is, but let me just shout out to anybody who's a single parent because like, I don't know how you do it. Like it is really freaking hard. And I don't mean just like, you know, everybody says to me when they hear about the single parents, they're like, Oh, now you appreciate how much your wife does. And I'm like, don't get me wrong. I've always appreciated how much my wife did with the kids, but keep in mind that like, what I'm doing now is like doing both things. I have to do what she was doing. And it's not like I stopped writing the factum. So like, doing two jobs at once man i don't know how single parents did it because i've been doing it for two weeks and i'm exhausted so it's been pretty it's been pretty crazy but one of the dilemmas that's been hitting is my daughter decided who i've been taking care of my daughter penny and she decided out of the blue camille and this is always tough for parents like us this is when we needed anna here to sort of chime us so she has been bugging me for a dog or a cat forever and I've just been putting her off because I don't really want a dog or a cat for a variety of reasons we don't have to get into right now. So suddenly, <laughs> like, she comes home the other day, and now it's like, okay, you don't want the dog or the cat. What about a fish? So <laughs> she's bugging me for a fish. And I'm trying oh. to think of how many reasons, you know, I can explain to her why a fish is a terrible idea <laughs> for the fish. Because the what she sees is, that the fish cuts down all my objections to the dog. You see the logic here, Camille? Well, yeah, she's got some rational arguments from that perspective. Exactly. Yeah. I, I should say that my, my, my daughter has always been, as you know, both a great vegan and a supporter of, uh, of animal justice. And she gets all the we shouldn't eat the animals because where she struggles with is seeing how the animal in the fishbowl or the fish in the fishbowl is so problematic. It's, it's a challenge. You know, I tell you. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that, that's sort of not surprising. Like, she wouldn't have been exposed likely in school or through her friends to the cognitive capacities of fish and their sentience and all the research about what amazing creatures they are. Um, you know, in the same way, I guess that it, people often think, you know, eating dairy or eggs is, is not so bad because you're not actually killing the animal, but then learn more about the actual realities behind that and come to see what the issue is. Yeah, we're struggling on that one. The fish has been a tough fight, Camille, I got to admit, because she, she just doesn't quite see it. But anyway, 
you know, we're, we're working on it. And, and actually, what an appropriate segue, isn't it, Camille? Because I don't know about you, but the first thing that I wanted to talk about in today's episode that caught my eye in the news is this pretty fabulous article in the Washington Post that was about, get this, Camille, the crazy idea that fish feel pain. Whoa, that's earth shattering. What do you mean, Peter? They're not vegetables? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to call this up and we're going to put a link to it in the show notes for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, it's a big article and it's in the Washington Post. And it's the kind of thing that shows that, you know, basic ideas about animals and the way they feel and the way they are cognitive beings um, is is really starting to go into the mainstream. And obviously, this article was replicated in the National Post. And what I found so interesting about the article was essentially the step-by-step recognition of something that has been going on in the jurisprudence for hundreds of years. The basic idea that it's so cool that what's happening with fish is that fish have generally been excluded for a long time from the animal welfare community, from the idea that, well, fish, you know, we're not raising them, they're not cows, they're not, we're just, we're just hauling them out of the ocean. And this basic idea that fish don't feel pain. And as a result of that, we don't owe them any obligations. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting because I think our jur- well, I think our laws, frankly, reflect the attitudes that people have had about fish for such a long time. Uh, we society, by, by we I mean society, I don't mean you and me, Peter, but mm-hmm. society views them as, as something that aren't quite animals they're they're sort of these mysterious creatures that inhabit this other realm the oceans and and the lakes and the streams that we're not really in ourselves and i think we found it really hard to empathize with them and see them as individuals and care about their suffering and they're also so much more hidden from our eyes even than animals on on farms who are kept in warehouses because they're kept in the ocean and we can't easily access that yeah and and what's also interesting is is you know, you study animal welfare and animal protection law and the history of it, and it's so interesting how it leads back hundreds of years ago to the idea, you know, that we didn't owe any obligations or we didn't need to have any legal protections for animals because they didn't feel pain. And one of the most important developments, really, in the late 1700s, early 1800s for animal protection was this growing consensus among uh, 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 citizens and, of course, philosophers, scientists, etc., to this idea that animals do feel pain. And that changed everything. That led us to say, well, then we owe them moral obligations. And what's so interesting is, like, 200 years later, we're just starting to have that recognition about fish. And I guess the question that I found so interesting in this article is, well, once we accept, I mean, I don't mean we, we, the larger we accept that fish do feel pain, what does that mean? What does that mean for the way in which we fish? And from what I read from that article, Camille, it shouldn't surprise us to know, it means a lot of problems because it's not easy to square our current fishing uh, methods with the fact that fish feel pain. Yeah, yeah. And the article goes into quite some detail about the numbers of fish killed. Well, I I don't want to use the word numbers, actually, because nobody really tracks the numbers of of aquatic animals killed, but their lives are measured in tons. And many, many, many uh, zillions, let's just use the word zillions, because I think that's a fair reflection. Zillions of tons of fishes are sucked out of the oceans every year by large trawlers. And the way that they're typically killed is by asphyxiation on the deck. They, of course, are aquatic animals, so when they're taken out of the water, they they can't breathe in the same way that we would drown if we were put into the water. And it takes most of them many, many minutes to die. Uh, so 
you know, that's a huge part of the way that fishes are killed and uh, end up on our dinner plates in this food system. Uh, accepting that they feel pain and that we have a moral obligation to prevent that means, uh, you know, like it would be impossible for that system to continue. Yeah. And, and, and again, like with all the, that killing that goes on and all the way in which we treat fish, um, um, all the methods that are used, not even lip service. And, and, and again, we've been, of course, critical of the way in which animal protection laws are treating farm animals in general. But at least we go through the dance of pretending that we care. But with fish, we don't even go that far. We just ignore the entire thing. And I think, I think it's, it's interesting to start thinking about if we can get this idea that fish do feel pain, again, you know, amazing that we have to actually go that far, um, into the mainstream. It'll be interesting to see, again, the inconsistency between the animals that we recognize do feel pain and get these nominal protections and the fish who get nothing the inconsistency will just continue to grow. And I think it'll be a, a really good leveraging point for animal advocates in the future. Well, I sure hope so. And there's also this angle, Peter, of course, that we're sucking the oceans dry. Well, I guess dry isn't really the right word, right word, but we're vacuuming fish out of the ocean at an astounding rate. And predictions are dire about what that means for the future health of fish populations and for the individuals whose lives are going to be lost. So this idea that we have to stop uh, sucking them out of the oceans in this way squares really well with the, the conservation aspects of it as well and the environmental protection angles and, and just preventing them from disappearing as species. Yeah, just as a personal aside, Camille, um, I've been a, uh, a vegetarian for 18 years and I've been a vegan now for 14 years. I haven't eaten fish for almost 30 years, and the reason for that was because I realized what was going on in the oceans, and that, that troubled me as much as anything else that was happening. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's hard to ignore. And, and, you know, funny enough, when a lot of people start making dietary changes, fishes tend to be the last thing to go, which is, you know, sad for reasons that relate to the way they're killed, relate to the, the number of them that you have to consume to get the same amount of calories or, or food out of it. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about these issues, it's a good idea to research some more and definitely check out the show notes and read this Washington Post article. Yeah, I'm dedicating this show to my brother, Mark, who listens to this and is one of those people who has gone vegetarian but keeps up a little fish here and there. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, this is for well, you, check Mark. it out, Mark. All right, Camille, I know you want to touch on uh, follow-up to the MFA hatchery investigation that you and Anna were discussing last week. What's up? That's right. So there was a piece in the Globe and Mail re recently by Jessica Scott Reed, who has written just a ton of pieces for the Globe and Mail and other publications about animal issues. She's been really, really successful in getting these issues part of the national discussion, which is one of the core things that animal justice tries to do. So we so appreciate Jessica's work in doing that. And actually, it's going to be public information by the time we post this show. So I'll mention that Jessica's receiving our inaugural media award at the gala. Fantastic so shout out news. to Jessica. Yes. But the piece is great. Uh, Peter, it talks about this MFA hatchery investigation. And one thing Anna and I mentioned last week is how little media coverage it got. It, it really got just a, a piece in the National Observer. And as far as I can recall, that was it. The mainstream news for the large part ignored it. And uh, Jessica talks about why this might be, why the shocking footage of chicks being ground up alive and handled roughly just newborn chicks uh, didn't make its way into these mainstream news articles. And her theory, which I totally agree is part of it, 
is that we have a tendency to avoid these topics that make us really uncomfortable and that shatter our assumptions about our world and the way that our food system works. So it, it was a really good piece, just reminding everyone, and, and I hope a good call out to the media as well, that they should not be ignoring these issues. The fact that these are difficult conversations is all the more reason to have them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. This is uh, really important stuff. I think uh, raising those sort of systemic issues and systemic concerns we have and trying to uh, address larger issues like that and, and, and trying to explain what's going on is absolutely critical. So great work by Jessica. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it occurs to me, you know, if you think about the news coverage that comes if somebody kicks a dog, uh, you know, that happens all the time and there's predictable outreach and people call for that person's head on a platter. And oftentimes there's violent threats made online. But yet the systemic abuse that happens behind the closed doors, typically of industrial farms, is something that um, affects so many more animals. Uh, yet we're all, I shouldn't say we're all, but most of us are complicit in. So I know it's hard to wrap one's head around that. I know it's a bit of a, a weird thing to start thinking about, but it is important that we get more coverage. So shout out to Jessica for writing that great piece. So Absolutely. Another story I wanted to touch on, Peter, was uh, a story in iPolitics about Senator Murray Sinclair's really, frankly, epic speech on Bill S-203, which is the whale and dolphin bill. Senator Sinclair is the bill sponsor. The bill has been held up for ages in the Senate, but he finally got it to third reading, and there's debate going on right now. He just gave the most powerful plea you can imagine in support of the, this bill, which many are calling the Free Willy Bill, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, but we were lucky enough to be there in the gallery when he gave that speech, and it was just incredible. I've never heard such pro-animal words being articulated before in Parliament. And uh, Senator Sinclair, Peter, as I'm sure you know, he's also in, very involved in Indigenous issues and Indigenous himself. And he made some remarks about the Indigenous ethos of respect for animals and creation and the environment and how that plays into what he's trying to accomplish with this bill as well, which just was truly beautiful. Phenomenal. I look forward. I've been a little busy, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, but I, I'm really looking forward to giving that a good read. I think it's uh, uh, always amazing when we can get words stated in Parliament to this effect and really start, again, just getting people to hear them for the first time. Anything pro-animal like that is really exceptional, and I, I look forward to reading that. Definitely. And unfortunately, we got to close it out with one piece of bad news, Camille. Uh, close out this part of the section as well. We're going to talk a little bit about, ooh, it's our friends in Chilliwack. What is in the water in Chilliwack, Camille, exactly? What uh, causes so much abuse of animals to resonate in that particular area? I was actually just thinking that same thing earlier today, Peter. There's, there's this case which involves chicken abuse. There was a Chilliwack cattle investigation, which, of course, has resulted in many charges and convictions. Uh, there's a rodeo in Chilliwack right now that some groups are ca campaigning against. It just seems to be the focus of so much of this stuff. Yeah, come on, Chilliwack. Get your act together. What is this yeah. particular case involves chickens and a failure to bring charges? What's going on there? Yeah, sounds familiar, huh? So, um... You know, the last time there was a Chilliwack investigation, it was a cattle sales case, and it took the Crown, was it close to two years before they laid charges? It, it was a very long time, and people were starting to get yeah, concerned. Yeah, it was really and, long. And well longer yeah, than it should have been. Way longer, and we're starting to see maybe history repeat itself. This case came out about a year ago. It was an MFA investigation. A lot of you probably saw it because it made major headlines at the time, but it was really, really brutal stuff about workers, like, dismembering live animals. 
um, throwing them around very, very roughly, slamming crates shut while their wings were still sticking out. It was, it was um, essentially chickens being raised for meat who were being put on trucks and sent to slaughter. So the BCSPCA, Peter, they recommended the charges be laid and criminal charges at that. And here we are a year later and nothing yet. Wow. I, I just don't understand these cases. We've, we've complained about this before, but it is really perplexing how this continues to happen again and again. Again, and and I guess what, what troubles me is like I wonder what what is like the effect of delay on the public mindset. The fact that these takes longer and longer to get there, and I don't know. I just can't help think that that sometimes it's about it's almost like a statement of, of the lack of importance. So even if we do get charges, I sort of wonder why it's taken so long to actually happen. And if we don't get charges, the idea is that it just dissipates because of course there's no guarantee they will charge at the end of the day. No, no, there's not. And, you know, we're obviously not privy to what's been going on. I, I don't doubt that the Crown is working on the case, but even if there are charges at the end of the day, I think you're right that the signal that this sends is troubling. Um, you know, there's something about uh, swift justice that I think is really important. Yeah, justice certainly... delayed is justice denied. That is a, a real statement that goes to a lot of different areas, not just for accused persons. I think that goes to everybody. The public sense of justice is, del is the longer you delay it, the more likely it is that it's denied altogether. Absolutely. And of course, it, it, it also, um, you know, plays into this idea, the ways that society, so the deterrence effect, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think lessen. If you want to send a signal to other animal abusers on farms that this behavior will not be tolerated, when the results are not swift and predictable, uh, I think that signal is, is mixed. I don't think it sends the right signal to them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So uh, let's hope this doesn't last much longer and that uh, more, more. We, we'll be we, we come to our senses. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully reporting some good news about charges that have uh, gone forward. All right, Camille. Uh, I think that's that sums it up. We want to get into our very interesting interview where we talk to Nick Wright about the founding and development of animal justice. Okay, and for our main segment, I'm so excited to welcome my colleague Nick Wright to the show to talk about the early days of animal justice, how things got started 10 years ago, and how we grew to where we are today. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, Peter. I'm thrilled to be here. Good to have you. Awesome. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm really excited for this episode because, uh, first of all, I can't believe it's been 10 years, Nick. Does it actually feel like that long to you? Yeah, it's crazy. Time just passes. It flies by. <laughs> uh, but I'm really thrilled and excited to see how the organization has grown over the years. So it's a nice opportunity to look back and reflect and to um, really appreciate the incredible community that we've built. So, Nick... Um... Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Uh, I'm really excited about this gala. Nick, um, can you tell us about what uh, drew you to animal issues in the first place? So I grew up uh, here in Toronto. Uh, when I went to university, I moved out east to Halifax, and I was studying philosophy. But in my free time, I would learn about other things, uh, current events, politics. And uh, I started to learn about animals and the way that we treat animals in factory farming for fur, uh, for clothing. And I was shocked. I had no idea that we were as cruel to animals as we are. Uh, and it took a little while for me to go from recognizing that what we were doing is wrong to starting to make changes in my own life to reduce the suffering that I cause. Uh, and then once I did a fair bit of that to uh, expanding the work I was doing to get into activism. 
and I got involved with a group uh, out east called the Animal Rights Collective of Halifax, which at the time I had no idea how effective we were. It felt like it was a never-ending struggle. We never made any progress, but it was really an incredible group of people. And uh, that experience, uh, learning about uh, the world and the suffering that we cause and getting involved with an incredible group, incredible group of other activists uh, really was the foundation for my work uh, regarding animals and uh, animal rights activism. So, Nick, that must have been about the same time that you were in law school. Am I right about that? Uh, that was about before law school, uh, but I got involved with animal rights activism and I uh, was involved with the group for pretty much my entire time in Halifax, so a little bit later while I was a law student as well. And when I uh, started law school, uh, it was funny, uh, one person, Halifax is not that big a place, it's about 80,000 people in the South End, uh, and one of the people I knew from uh, the animal rights group was Professor Von Black, who was uh, my torts professor in law school and also someone I knew from the animal rights community. Uh, and he ended up being one of the founding directors of Animal Justice uh, when it was founded a number of years later. So uh, it really was a great community, uh, and it's been a pleasure to know and work with Vaughn for so many years. Well, and that's so cool because Vaughn's actually still an advisor with Animal Justice today, and we rely on his uh, his advice all the time. So that's that's pretty neat history you've got going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Nick, you finished law school, and pretty much right after you finished law school, if my memory serves correctly, you decided that we needed an animal law group, and you started going about creating one. Yeah, so my experience was having this uh, great group of uh, animal rights colleagues in Halifax, moving back to Toronto and finding that while there were many great organizations doing great work, I didn't really feel like I, I fit with any of them. I didn't feel like they were doing the types of campaigns that I was interested in working on. Uh, and that's when uh, a friend that I'd met in the professional responsibility course that you had to take to become a lawyer at the time, Evelyn Kostanska, uh, and I thought, why not set up a organization in Canada that advocates on behalf of animals using law and legal skills? And that's something that other countries like the United States, the UK already had. But in Canada, we didn't have that. So it was both a great way to continue uh, the activist work that uh, I'd been doing. Uh, but also to fill a void in the Canadian uh, animal rights landscape to provide uh, skills that we were able to provide uh, and make a, a different contribution to the campaign to uh, decrease suffering and recognize animals as sentient beings. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the development of legal groups has been a radical change from just the standard advocacy organizations that uh, were obviously doing great work, but uh, there's no question that the legal groups brought another dimension to the table, and I'm guessing that was a large part of uh, why you decided to do this. Yeah, and for me, um, from my perspective, it was just a way to keep on doing the activism that I was already doing. Uh, it's much more effective to do it through a group. So initially, uh, it was me, Vaughn, and Evelyn on the board of directors, uh, and we basically started right away just uh, with the campaigns that came up. Uh, one early campaign was speaking out uh, with other activists against the OSPCA's plan to uh, mass slaughter uh, all of the animals in the Newmarket shelter, which was appalling. Uh, they stated that there was an outbreak of treatable ringworm uh, as justification. Uh, after the fact, uh, that was even put into question. Uh, we worked on uh, campaigns like uh, helping vet students who were being told that unless they killed a dog, after a routine spay or neuter operation, they would not be allowed to become a veterinarian and finish school. 
so that was an exciting campaign in that uh, we worked with vet students who were brave to stand up against their school. And as a result, uh, there's accommodation in place, uh, both for vets and vet techs in Ontario. Uh, so we had some great early campaigns. Uh, and that's when we really started building, um, at the time, a smaller community, but still a community. And the group uh, really got going, I think, when we started bringing in students. Uh, and at the time, I was practicing law, as I still do today, corporate commercial law. And out of my legal office, I would bring in uh, students, summer students, articling students, who would spend a lot of their time on animal justice. And that uh, really helped build the organization. So I'm still very grateful to all of the articling students and summer students who uh, came on board and uh, allowed us to really leverage the organization when we had very few funds and do some really incredible campaigns. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, and probably a lot of people don't really fully understand or realize the huge role that students had in the early days of the organization. I mean, I was a summer student in 2011, and we were lucky enough at my school, U of T Law, that they had a granting program where I was able to get a grant from the school through the Donner Foundation to come and join from the summer. And I know the very first summer student, the summer before me, was uh, Sophie Gaillard, who now works at the Montreal SPCA. And uh, things just kind of continued on from there. But it, it's definitely cool to think of how the students helped, I think, catapult us into the um, into where we are now with a much more professional and expansive team. What was it really like in the early days, Nick? I mean, before about 2011 or 2012, what, you know, what kind of resources did animal justice have? And maybe you could also uh, tell the listeners about what the first name of the organization was. Sure. Well, it's kind of fun. Um, I had quite a bit of political experience as well as the founding leader of the Green Party of Nova Scotia and ran federally in 2006 for the federal Green Party in Halifax. Uh, so when starting that organization as founding leader, it was kind of fun because at one point everyone was so exhausted from organizing the uh, our convention that for a period of time, it was <laughs> it felt like a one man show with a cell phone, a computer where I'd send a media release, get a call on the phone. Uh, do the interview. Uh, so it was the same kind of thing. It's really an extension of that. Um, being able to uh, have what uh, has the appearance of and the impact of a much larger organization with a very small number of people. So likewise with the students, uh, it was really quite remarkable looking back what we were able to do. I remember uh, Zainab uh, Graves, who was one of the early Arctic students, our first Arctic student, uh, and I, uh, it was just the two of us in the office. Uh, she had much more time to dedicate to some of the, the heavy lifting, the drafting, uh, but we were able to really influence the City of Toronto animal bylaws by meeting with uh, city councillors, uh, interested city councillors, uh, policy advisors uh, with the city, uh, and essentially drafting model legislation for the city to implement uh, many of the provisions which they did actually uh, insert into the revised bylaw. So even though it was just um, a very small group, uh, because of the skill set we had, the experience and the expertise, we were able to make some pretty uh, significant change. So I think it just goes to show that uh, it doesn't take a lot of people necessarily. It doesn't take a lot of resources necessarily. It takes dedication. It takes the right skill set uh, and just the determination to keep at it. Uh, in the early days, uh, the organization's name was Lawyers for Animal Welfare Law. Uh, which I thought was clever. Was, which fun, was a great acronym. <laughs> a fun acronym. Uh, but then we, we found out that uh, the whole um, 
welfare rights debate uh, was brought up unnecessarily. Uh, and also, uh, I wanted to shift the emphasis a little bit away from uh, lawyers because our group now, uh, while still uh, includes many lawyers, also includes uh, media and communications experts. Uh, in the past, we've relied on uh, scientists and scientific experts. So it's just a way to uh, broaden the organization, uh, add additional appeal, and also, I think, uh, create a new and more dynamic name for the organization. I think I just want to touch on one thing that you raised uh that I think is really important to understand. And, and it, it's great. I think you're right. The dedication and skills and having people go forward um, is, is a real good part of, you know, how we're able to get things done. But I, I've seen a lot of groups of this size fail. And I think uh, it's been interesting to, to hear you both comment on the, the having the summer students uh, involved, because I do think that having people who could work on this on a, a, a long, uh, devote a lot of time to these issues is really integral when you're trying to get an organization off its feet. And I guess my next question is, did you have moments during those early years where like burnout became a problem or concern that you weren't able to move things along? Well, I think um, ha having had my experience uh, with activist groups in Halifax and also in the political realm and building a new political party, I had experience with uh, building new organizations and had experienced some of the challenges that you can face. Uh, one lesson was not to grow too quickly uh, and to be um, mindful about uh, who to bring in and who to get involved in various campaigns. Also to bring people in slowly. Uh, to make sure that they have the, the time and uh, dedication in order to carry out the campaigns or work that they're going to do. And I think that slow approach, uh, while a little bit counterintuitive, is actually more effective in getting things done because they make sure that you end up with the right group of people uh, and the right culture. Uh, with regards to burnout, um, I've always been uh, pretty intense. When I look back to those early days, uh, <laughs> especially so, <laughs> This is a very intense person. I'd take on a huge amount and uh, do it with a great deal of intensity. Um, so, yeah, burnout um, was certainly an issue. And there were certainly times when I felt like I was taking on too much. But I think the approach I took to the organization helped mediate against that. And the idea was that long term, the vision was to have a national organization with uh, people and offices all across the country. Uh, but it was also just a way to continue the activism that I wanted to do anyways and was doing prior to the creation of the organ organization. So uh, so that approach allowed me to kind of ebb and flow, uh, especially with the help of students. Um, if I got busy with my legal work, I could focus on that. The students would you know, be working independently on the campaigns. If things slowed down for a bit, that was okay. We'd pick it back up uh, later on. So I think in the early years... Um, that approach of um, working intensely and then taking a break when other things get busy allowed the organization to be uh, something that was sustainable for me and not uh, being too much with the legal practice that that also uh, ebbed and flowed quite a bit. Uh, sometimes we'd be very busy and sometimes not. So, yeah, while, while we're definitely very intense uh, in the way we operated, it was also uh, had a lot of flexibility and that allowed for uh, for breaks and uh, regrouping and strategizing uh, as required. That's one thing I love about animal justice today is that we have such a, a great team and people who can sort of pick up the slack if others have to step away for a little while. And uh, probably a, a lot of people may not realize that a lot of our team members are still very, very part-time or else volunteers. There's only a couple of full-time staff, but 
you know, for me, it was a, it, it's exciting. I, I think your point, Nick, about bringing on the right people and introducing people slowly and making sure that the team is a really good fit with each other is a good one. And it makes me think, actually, of how long some of us have all known each other. I mean, I've you and I, Nick, have known each other since 2006 through Green Party stuff, yep. Yep. since we both used to be involved. Um, Anna and I, and, you know, I, I assume you met Anna around the same time as I did in law school, like 29 or 2010. And same thing with Kimberly well before then. And then, you know, Peter, I think 2010 or 2011. So, you know, we all have a lot of history uh, together. And I'm wondering if you sort of agree with me that part of the reason we all do so well is the, the length of time we've known each other and that uh, making sure we had the right fit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, my experience with previous organizations was that uh, especially early stage organizations that are volunteer run, uh, where you know one or two uh, people who are a bad fit can really chase out the good because everyone's there volunteering. They don't want to deal with a lot of interpersonal issues or um, things that are extraneous to uh, the work that everyone's there to do. So I think that lesson applied uh, has built uh, not only a great organization, but a great group of friends and a great uh, community. And what I've seen uh, in recent years, and it's been this case for a while, is that we've built such a wonderful uh, team, a wonderful community, that it draws uh, people who want to be part of that and want to get involved. Uh, and yeah, it's just created a really nice, a really nice group. And I think when we see the organization grow, uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. What is an organization? You know, is it a physical office? Is it uh, binders on a shelf? Um, is it uh, a network of relationships? Um, and really, um, I think what it is in our case is a community that keeps on getting bigger and bigger. Um, in the early days of our annual Christmas party, uh, it was at a friend and supporter, uh, Dwight Freed's house, who very graciously uh, hosted us. And that would be maybe, you know, 30 or 40 people. And I've noticed every year uh, our events get bigger and bigger uh, to the point where uh, frequently there are many people that I've yet to meet, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, when the organization gets so big that there are new people coming in all the time, uh, it creates a really uh, dynamic and, and fun environment. So I think that's perhaps where our biggest success has been, uh, not only our success with our campaigns, but also in building and growing this incredible uh, community of people. And that includes uh, the core team who works on our various campaigns, our volunteers who are involved in things like tabling and uh, helping out at the events, uh, and then our supporters and donors as well. Uh, so, so it really is uh, like building a family, like building a community. And I think that's where our success to date and our continued growth will continue to be. I think that's the absolutely the right way to look at it. And I, I think that's how you create social change too, is by having this team of people, this community, all pushing in the same direction and pulling for the right thing. So I'm also so proud of, of what we've accomplished there. And yeah, you're, you're so right about the holiday party. I always think of that personally as sort of a good metric of our growth. And yeah, in the early days, we'd have a few dozen people there. Uh, you know, this year we had close to 400 RSVPs for the holiday party. So I think that really tells you in which direction the, 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 the momentum's going. And it's so important that it also be fun. Uh, sometimes uh, the campaigns and work we do can be difficult and trying. Sometimes it involves looking at and dealing with cases of very upsetting cruelty. Uh, but I think that's where the community comes in. Everyone can support each other. It means that uh, it's not all about, uh, you know, looking at horrible videos. It's about uh, friendships. It's about 
uh, a shared values uh, and working together to spread our message of compassion. I couldn't agree more. So in the few minutes that we have left, uh, Peter, I think maybe we should ask Nick some questions about some of the campaigns that animal justice has done, which are, of course are also uh, pretty impressive when you reflect on them. So Nick, I'm wondering, uh, you know, out of all the campaigns we've taken on in the last 10 years, are there any that stand out in your mind as being especially important for either the animals or the organization? Well, one of um, my favorites uh, and probably the most fun uh, for me, at least, was our shark fin campaign. Uh, and this came <laughs> um, uh, not long after we'd done a lot of work on the animal bylaws uh, campaign. Um, um, or perhaps it was uh, perhaps it was before that. But in any event, uh, it was an exciting time because a documentary film had been put out uh, that really uh, made people aware of the horrific practice of shark finning, where sharks are caught, their fins are cut off, and then they're dumped back into the ocean to slowly die of suffocation or predation. Uh, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, groups in response to this documentary uh, started working to ban the importation and consumption of shark fin at a municipal level, the idea to build momentum and then get similar bans uh, provincially and federally. And in Toronto uh, at the time, we had an incredible group of city councillors, very pro-animal uh, council. And it was just uh, such a great opportunity to be able to work with members of city council. And then ultimately, and if you recall, Camille, of course you do, uh, you were involved with the group at that time as a student, uh, if I recall correctly. Uh, and we worked yep. uh, with lawyer Kevin Toyne, uh, who was working on a pro bono basis to attempt to intervene in the shark fin industry's attempt to strike down the bylaw that was successfully implemented, banning shark fin. Uh, and unfortunately, luck wasn't on our side in court that day. Uh, the judge just so happened to be a former board member of the Chinese Business Association uh, and uh, couldn't understand our argument that uh, shark fins were animals and not soup. Uh, so that's the way it goes sometimes. We didn't get our intervention status, uh, which was unfortunate because the arguments put forward by the municipal lawyer uh, weren't uh, compelling enough and the, the bylaw was ultimately uh, struck down. So while uh, we lost the battle in that sense, I think we're winning the ongoing war by continuing to push forward with uh, policies that will protect our oceans and protect sharks. Uh, but just uh, something about that campaign, the, the momentum, the interesting uh, and passionate people that got involved, the way we're able to campaign uh, at all different levels uh, with the, uh, the political level, uh, the grassroots level, at the court level. Uh, I think that was important because it really demonstrated what we could do as an organization and how we could work at all these different levels to advance important animal issues. Uh, so while it was a bit of a setback in terms of the bylaw being overturned, uh, I think that was really an important campaign for animal justice because it really demonstrated the different levels we could work on and what we were able to uh, accomplish. I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up because it's it's always one of my favorites too. And um, I was also so proud of the legal opinion that we produced to to help city councillors understand the legal issues when they were trying to pass it. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. It was really unfortunate that we did not get intervener status in that case. And listeners, that was the first time that we did go to court trying to become interveners. Uh, so... Ultimately, I think that the, the decision in that case suffered as a result of us not being there because there was little to no discussion about animals in it. And, you know, the, the valid basis for, 
protecting sharks by enacting this bylaw. So that always stuck out in um, in my mind too. But it, you know, it was an exciting time, and I hope that we you know keep looking at doing more stuff on city council because I still think it's a good area for progress. And I remember um, when we lost the application uh, to intervene, we had costs of three thousand dollars awarded against us. And I was thinking, oh no, how are we going to pay that three thousand dollars? Because I think that was our annual budget <laughs> at the time. Uh, fortunately, I know it's funny. <laughs> fortunately, we had an event, and uh, donors were forthcoming. So, uh, but it's also fun to think uh, of how we've grown uh, from an organizational perspective in terms of fundraising and uh, just overall uh, since that that early day. Yeah, and you know that was only about five years ago, just over five years ago. So we've grown a lot in a pretty short time. It's it's fun to reflect. Nick, on. if you were to uh, so, um, if you were to look forward, where would you uh, what would you see, or what would you like to see animal justice uh, do or grow in the next ten years? Well, it's always been my vision for the organization from the very beginning that it be like some of the large environmental advocacy organizations that we see here in Canada with multi million dollar budgets with offices across the country with staff, uh, fully staffed offices in numerous cities. Uh, so that's my vision for animal justice, that we continue to grow and build. Because while we do do a lot of great work and work on many different campaigns, there's so much work to be done. Uh, and in order to do that, I see building the structure of the organization, the infrastructure, the fundraising, the support network, as being integral to get the number of people involved working on a full-time basis to carry out the campaigns that we need to carry out. So while I think that the campaigns we've been working on has been incredible, I'd like to see that continue to expand and just the organization to grow and flourish so we can have a bigger impact and make more of an impact on animals and reducing suffering. That's one of my constant frustrations, too, is you know the fact that we're doing such amazing work in so many areas, but that we can't do it all, that we can't do more. So here's to the next 10 years being uh, enabling us to do it all. Absolutely. Well, given how much we've grown uh, in 10 years to date, I can only imagine we'll be in another 10. So I'm very excited for the future and expect that uh, we'll be listening back to this uh, interview uh, years down the road and uh, we'll have similar fond memories uh, and be able to compare of how we've continued to grow and continue to uh, make a big impact uh, all across the country. That'll be for, uh, that'll be for Paul and Order's 10 year anniversary show. <laughs> we'll have, to, have, to, have to have a separate 3, gala for that. <laughs> oh, well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to hear a little bit more about the early days of the organization. I, I think people are pretty aware of what we do these days, but the, the early days, I think it's it's illuminating to to learn more about what it was like back then and why you founded Animal Justice in the first place. So thank you for joining us and we'll talk again soon. Well, thanks, Camille. Thanks, Peter. And uh, looking forward to it. Heroes and Zeros. Okay, and it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Heroes and zeros. <laughs> Let's hope it's everybody's favorite. 
Our Hero of the Month, I'm excited to uh, talk very briefly about our Hero of the Month, and that is the person we just heard from, uh, Nick Wright of Animal Justice. We think it's appropriate at this time to uh, really celebrate and commemorate what Nick did in getting his organization off the ground. And I can tell you, um, I've mentioned it before, that I was involved with a very similar group uh, that started before Animal Justice in New Zealand, and I can tell you it is no easy feat to keep a group up and running, get the momentum going, and I think I think Nick and his conversation was actually quite modest about the role he had in getting uh, animal justice off the ground. And most importantly, uh, Camille, I know you appreciate this today, in doing the legwork to get the organization properly in order, founding it as a nonprofit, um, really getting the tax structure and the organizational structure set up, those are, those are things that nobody ever wants to do. Everybody wants to run out and campaign and do cool things and get on TV. And Nick spent a lot of time doing the hard work, and uh, I think that set the ground work and the foundation in place to make animal justice what it is today. So so I'm really proud to honor Nick with our hero of the episode. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, Peter. Nick has been tremendous to work with over the past decade. Um, he's an excellent colleague. And uh, Nick, I hope you're listening to this. We all think that you're just the best. So thank you for everything that you've poured into animal justice over the years. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, every hero comes with a zero. What you got, Camille? Yeah, and this one, this is a pretty big zero for a lot of reasons. So Van Bokel Farms. Now, if you followed the pig trial closely, Anita Krein's uh, criminal mischief trial for giving water to suffering pigs on their way to slaughter, then you might remember the name Van Bokel because the pigs who were on the truck that Anita assisted by giving them some water came from Van Bokel Farms. And uh, the, the owner uh, or partner in Van Bokel Farms, a Mr. Van Bokel, actually testified at that trial against Anita seeking to convict her of criminal mischief. So the reason that Mr. Van Bokel and his firms are getting the zero this week is that uh, a burn fire at Van Bokel, a burn fire at Van Bokel Farms just killed 3,000 sows, so that's female oh, pigs, boy. and an unspecified number of what I assume are baby pigs that were with them. Um, so they burned alive at this guy's farm. Wow. Unbelievable. Yep. Uh, yet another barn fire. Is anyone still surprised at this point? I, I'm not. Just kind of ironic. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess that's part of the zero for this month. Kind of ironic uh, that uh, someone yeah. who complained about pigs getting water is... Uh, I guess failing. Yeah, no, failing it's just amazing, right? Like, yeah, the, you know, uh, we could we could say this about any of the barn fires that have happened, but these these places typically don't have sprinkler systems, they don't have fire detection systems, they don't have strong measures to protect animals from burning literally to death, and yet these farms see fit to go after somebody like Anita who saw uh, fit to be kind to an animal instead of you know leaving them to die in a barn fire. So I. <laughs> I don't even know what more to say about that. But at least they'll be facing contest. charges, right, for their failure. To... Oh, no, no, no. That's never Oh, no happen. one has ever been charged over a barn fire. Why no would they way. do that, Peter? No way. Those barns are so hard to keep not on fire or to properly, you know, <laughs> uh, have, have sprinkler systems. We don't want to do that. Let's just let them burn when things go bad. It's a terrible case. I can't make jokes about it. It's uh, yet another well-earned zero to Van Bokel Farm.
We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.